Matthew chapter 5. I got the rev wagon back from the shop this week. They successfully got the deer out of my headlight. This is the second time this year my car has been in the body shop. And I love picking my car up at the body shop. Because they don't, they don't just restore it to its pre-accident splendor. They restore whatever part they fix right to brand new. And, uh, you know, these days that means, you know, to do it right, they kind of have to kind of paint and clear coat kind of a big section. And, uh, boy, and, then, and then the place that I go to, at least, they, they, uh, they clean the whole inside and put some stuff on the wheels. And you go there and your car looks, boy, just like on the showroom or on the uh, dealer lot. You think... Oh, man, I'm so glad to get my car back. It's so beautiful. I love my car. And that lasts until the next time it gets a door ding, right on the very spot they fixed, you know, which happened this summer. You know, got the whole side of the car fixed, and within a few weeks, the Lord said, you love that car too much. (laughs) This is the common kind of happiness. This is the normal kind of happiness. It is random and cyclical. It comes and goes, and you can't do anything about it. You go, you think, boy, I'm just going to love my car, and then you think, no, I don't love my car. And then something else comes along. But God's kind of happiness is predictable and lasting, and he gives us the plan for it in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3. Blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed or happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And today, happy are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. In this beatitude, as it's called, God moves now from internal attitudes in our relationship with God more to how we relate to other people. And he says, happiness comes through being merciful. What's the definition of mercy? Well, this is kind of a definition I've always had on the tip of my tongue. It's it's God withholding of what sinners deserve. And it was always coupled with this definition of grace, which is God giving what is undeserved. So sort of two sides of the coin. God withholds punishment. God gives uh, blessing and salvation. And, and that's not totally wrong, but, but as I studied this week, I came to realize that the concept of mercy is much broader than that. And really the root concept is like this, compassion for those in need kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and afflicted joined with a desire to help them to feel sympathy with the misery of another those are all quotes from from uh, people who have studied this word in its original language and of course we see this this concept of compassion toward the miserable lived out when people use this word talking to jesus When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic, and he suffers severely 
and he often falls into the fire and the water. If we were to to break this down a little bit, we'd say, well, these people all had misery. Here's a a fellow with epilepsy. There's a woman whose daughter is demon-possessed, and here's two men that are blind. They they had miserable conditions in their life, and and the concept of mercy is, is them saying, would you please have compassion on me? If I was to reduce this concept of mercy down to some principles, it would be like this. Mercy isn't earned. These people were not asking for something that they had earned or that they deserved. Jesus did not permit him, but said, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion or mercy on you. This is one of the people that Jesus healed. You know, as Jesus walked along through, through his ministry on earth, people like those blind men or others would say, please have mercy on me, and he'd go, okay. They didn't earn that. They didn't give him a big offering. They didn't do some service for him. Uh, most of the people he healed didn't even talk about faith in him or that sort of thing. Even the ones that believed in him probably didn't have what we'd call real saving faith. They kind of thought, well, he, he must be the Messiah we're looking for. Maybe later on they did. They didn't earn what his compassion. And, and, and mercy is also not reciprocal. Jesus didn't do things for people so they would do things back. In fact, sometimes when he healed people, he said, now, don't tell anybody about this. You know, in, in, our, in our American marketing mentality, we think, what in the world's wrong with you, Jesus? You've got, you got a photo op here. You've got a, a great opportunity. <clears throat> Look at verse 46 of Matthew 5. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? He's, he's using the word tax collector here as kind of a, a coded way to refer to unbelievers who are not well-liked. In other words, they're, they're what we would call bad people. You know, we, we shouldn't, but that's what we would call them. And he says, you know what, if you go around being merciful to people or loving people who love you in return, he said, that's just what the wicked people do. There's nothing special about that. And so clearly, the mercy of God isn't reciprocal. Well, I'll do for you if you do for me. I can see you're in need, but you know, someday I'm going to call this favor in. That's not mercy. And this sounds a little bit mushy, but mercy does well up in the heart of the merciful. Jesus walked along, and, and, and we would hear things like this. They said to him, he, he, you know, somebody's blind, and he says, What do you want? Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus was merciful. He had compassion on their misery, and he touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight. These people, walk. he's walking along, have mercy on us. He looks down and says, boy, you're in trouble. And, 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 and there's something in his heart that was compassionate that acted on their situation. You know, the, the word here, the word here for compassion is actually a word that means the innards, the, your, your innards, okay? I won't use the technical terms because I know some of you are a little queasy, but uh, 
You know, the Greek folks who created the language that the Bible was written in, they knew that when certain things happen in life, you feel it in here. You know, that happens. We, we talk about having butterflies in the stomach. Well, um, get tense down in here. Oh, and something is bothering us. Or, you know, something can be really, really terrible to look at and you feel all of a sudden a little bit sick. And so they thought the deepest emotions of human life originated down in there. And so it literally says bowels. Jesus had bowels for him. But you know what he's what it's really trying to tell us through the language is there's a gut reaction. There's a gut reaction. When we see people in need, there should be the compassion should well up. There should be a gut reaction. It says, oh, there's a need. Can I do something about it? How did God demonstrate his mercy? Well, the first demonstration of mercy, of course, was uh, Adam and Eve. And what was their misery that he had compassion on? Class? What? Their sin. Their sin and what was the real misery coming? Death. Spiritual death and physical death. And, and he had told them, now don't do this. And they rebelled and they did it. And then the, the point of today's sermon is, how did he then look at them? Did he look at them and go, you stupid humans. Man. No, he didn't, did he? Would he have been justified in striking them dead? Absolutely, right on the spot, right that moment. But he looked with compassion. He said, oh, you poor humans. And he felt compassion. We could use the word pity. Sometimes in our human pride, we say, I don't want your pity. I tell you what, you want God's pity. Because you don't want what the other side of that coin is. They became sinners under a death sentence and so what did God do for them? He covered them. Do you know what the word for, for the result of a sacrifice in the Old Testament was? We use the word atonement. God said the sacrifices will atone for your sin. Do you know what the word atone means, literally? A covering. What did God do for Adam and Eve when they sinned? He covered them in a prefiguring picture of the sacrifices to come. He was merciful. He didn't give them what they deserved. He didn't say, now, you, you got to earn this. No, he was merciful to them. And then, of course, there were many examples of God's mercy demonstrated toward the people of Israel. You know, uh, the books that we refer to as the historical books in the Old Testament just over and over talk about that but it really comes down to this jesus embodied mercy in his whole life and death on the cross and he embodied mercy first of all to the people he healed those people didn't deserve that he didn't owe that to them uh, and and unless you have misunderstood the prime reason he healed was to demonstrate his person that he was a divine human person, the Messiah. And so he was demonstrating who he was. 
And in the process of that, he had compassion on them. He, as an example of, of people not being healed, but that he had compassion on, the woman, the woman caught in adultery. Now that whole situation you know, appears to us to have been kind of a put-up deal by the Pharisees who hated Jesus. But they, here's a bunch of, a bunch of men, they, they bring this woman and they say, we caught her in the very act of adultery. Now what are you going to do? And of course the Old Testament law says she's supposed to be stoned. You know? one, would, one would have to ask, how did they know that was going to be happening? You know, there are a lot of questions to go with it. But Jesus looked at her and uh, looked at them and said, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. He was starting to teach us about mercy in the sense of saying, you know what, guys? You're over here all high and mighty. I've never committed adultery. And he says, if you're sinless, then you can go ahead and stone her. He was trying to help them learn what compassion is about. Now, of course, Christ's compassion didn't come from that that kind of thing, it came because he possesses mercy within his character. And he looked at the woman, and instead of thinking, you stupid woman, he thought, you poor soul. And he had compassion on her. What about Peter? Wasn't Jesus merciful to Peter? You know, one of the gospel accounts when he's, you know, he's sitting there saying, I do not know the man, I do not know the man. And the third time he says it, it says that Jesus looked at him across the room. Can you imagine that moment? Man. Did Jesus say, that's it, buddy? No. And, you know, even more than Peter, think about Judas. Right before Judas goes out of the upper room to, to uh, betray Christ, Jesus has this interchange with him. Judas had a moment, had an opportunity for mercy there, but he was steadfast on his way to sin. But with Peter, you know, after the resurrection, Jesus meets him on the seashore and he says, Peter, come on, buddy. And Peter got right with the Lord, and Peter went on to be the the uh, the founder of the, of the body of Christ. I mean, unbelievable. And then, of course, us. Jesus has embodied mercy to us. Without doubt, the greatest mercy ever shown was Jesus Christ acting to remove our misery by dying on the cross to pay for our sin. When the kindness... And the love of God our Savior toward mankind appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. You see, if God expected works to earn salvation, it wouldn't be merciful. Because mercy doesn't, isn't earned, mercy is compassion that is given, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration, being born again, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified or made righteous by his grace, the giving of our salvation, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God doesn't just withhold punishment. He gives us eternal life and he gives us an inheritance with Christ. 
Jesus has embodied mercy to us. In speaking of the mercy, in speaking of the, the result of mercy, the psalmist put it this way, God has not dealt with us according to our sins. You know, the people who, who want to work for their salvation and want to somehow stand before God and say, okay, look at my life, I'm ready to be here, really haven't thought this thing through. Because if God deals with you according to your sin, you're going to be in a rough way. The psalmist said, I am so glad God has not dealt with us according to our sin, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. The mercy of God leads him to forgive our sin because of the death of Christ and our willingness to believe in that. God does not act based on what we deserve. But there is an important phrase here. His mercy is great toward those who fear him. And so I would ask the question today, what does it mean to fear God? Well, I think it means to obey This is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Our refusal to believe in Christ as Savior means we do not fear God. It means we are willing to go to heaven and say, yeah, I know what you said, but I just think I'm going to go a different direction. That is not fearing God. Fearing God is doing what he said. Jesus said, if you are my friends, you will obey me. And so it means to believe in him. God has seen our sinful misery and provided a solution. Forgiveness because of the payment of Christ. Have you received the mercy of God? Have you received that forgiveness that he wants to extend? When you receive the merciful forgiveness... That merciful forgiveness then becomes the motivation of mercy. That merciful forgiveness becomes the motivation of mercy. Turn with me to 1 Timothy, please. 1 Timothy chapter 1. The Apostle Paul clearly perceived his own sinfulness. And we read about that here in 1 Timothy 1, starting in verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer. Blaspheme means to speak bad about God. A persecutor, persecuted the body of Christ. And an insolent man, or an arrogant, proud man. But I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying that is worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy. 
that in me, first, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe in him for everlasting life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever. The Apostle Paul said, I was the chief of sinners. In fact, he says, I'm an example for the rest of the sinners of how patient God can be. You know, he said he, he spoke bad things about God. Now, he did it ignorantly, but he spoke bad things about God. Now, here he is out persecuting the church of God. And instead of God just squashing him like a bug, God mercifully saved him. He didn't deserve salvation. He didn't do anything to earn it. God saved him. And the result of that was he saw his sinfulness and he realized how great God is and how great the sacrifice of Christ is and how great the mercy of God is. And, and that caused him to be merciful to others. As a believer in Christ, you should be able to see much more clearly how sinful you are, you were before God saved you, and how much you have tread on that salvation by sinning as a believer. Now, I don't say this to make you feel bad alone. I say it to challenge you to feel bad and then feel thankful. We should be able to look back and go, man, I, I was foolish. I thought this, and I thought that, and I did this, and I did that. I didn't know what was going on. And yet God saved me. And maybe some of you, like me, were saved at a young age. I didn't have enough years yet to be a wicked sinner before I got saved. But I made up for it a little bit during my Christian life. And, 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 and I can look back now and say, God was merciful to me. God kept me from some things, and he stopped some things, and he prevented some things. And I can look back and say, boy, I... You know, uh, when people come in, to, to, in my office and are looking for help, I don't have trouble seeing some compassion over there because I know that I am a sinner too. Jerry Sandusky is the, uh, used to be one of the coaches at Penn State who sexually abused all those boys. At his hearing, he said this, In my heart, I didn't do any of these alleged disgusting acts. even though there were multiple witnesses and much testimony in my heart, I didn't do that. You know what that is? That is him not seeing his own sinfulness. Now, I'm not being any harder on him than I would on myself. That man sinned greatly, but somehow he has become so calloused, so calloused to his sin that he looks back and says, I didn't do all those disgusting things. Maybe he really doesn't think he did it. Maybe he's forgotten. I, I have no idea what's going on. But I know that he does not see himself the way he should. Because if he did, he would have said, I'm sorry. I did wrong. I should not have taken advantage. Spell it out any way you want to spell it out. But that man did not sin did not see his sin. We can sin so much that our sin doesn't seem so bad. You know, that's why you should confess the first sin that happens. 
because you don't know where that's leading. The longer you live in sin, the more... that God uses the word uh, to have your conscience seared. And you can get to a point where you look at your life and you go, I'm not a bad person. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good. What are you talking about? And so you look at other people and you think, what's your problem? And we have forgotten, we have forgotten what God did in saving us. The Apostle Paul never got to that point. He said, I am the chief of sinners. You know, we can, we can sin so much that our sin doesn't seem so bad, or we can begin to think that we're entitled to God's forgiveness. As though, well, yeah, I sin, but hey, God has to forgive me. It's a woman named Amanda Clayton about a year or so ago who won a million dollars in a lottery back in Michigan. Good for her. And she kept on collecting food stamps from the state. And somebody found out about it, and, they, and the TV people went to interview her. You can, you can watch this on the YouTube if you want to see it. But they said, do you think it's right to keep taking food stamps when you've won a million dollars? And she said, well, I, I have two houses, and I have bills to pay, so yeah, yeah, I think it's right. <laughs> really? <laughs> if that's not entitlement I don't know what entitlement is Christians can get that way too oh, yeah I know I know that's wrong it's okay. God's going to forgive me boy we're in danger when we get to that point we need to see our sin the way God sees it and the result should be something like Paul's attitude here I know I'm a sinner. I know I don't have it all together. And, and out from that should come the expression of mercy. The expression of mercy. And first of all, that we should have compassion toward those in physical misery. Uh, Jesus had compassion toward those. And, and we should too. And it should come out of Scripture like this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And, and all you'd have to do is ask yourself, when, when you are in physical misery, what do you want other people to do? Okay? You want them to help you, you want them whatever. You know, I know there's a few people who want to be left alone, but ultimately they only want to be left alone by some people, and they want to be helped by other people. When you're in physical misery, you want some relief of some kind, somehow. God says, love your neighbor as yourself. If you see some physical misery and you can help relieve it, you ought to do that. The Apostle John takes this one step farther. Whoever has this world's goods, the stuff of life, and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, you understand that? that John is saying there's an active sense in which, which the compassion wells up, and then we, we stop it. We actively say, no, I'm not going to do anything. How does the love of God abide in him? That's a pretty challenging thought. We're going to come back to that in a minute. God has a number of instructions for us as a body of Christ, and I understand there's more than just this one instruction when it comes to showing uh, mercy to people in physical concern. There, there's some other things that ought to be taken into account. And yet, 
we need to be merciful to those in physical need. You know, when, when Sue and I first entered the ministry, we were the recipients of all kinds of physical kindness and, and uh, in supporting us, my own parents helping us. And, and uh, you know, my dad used to say his wallet was so fat that it would explode if he didn't get rid of some of his cash. And I know that was not true. My mom's wallet maybe, but not his. You, my dad gave to us because he knew what it was like to be poor and especially to be poor in the ministry. His, he had compassion on us because God had been merciful to him. And people in churches in the same way, I, I could give you a long list of God's provision in our life through his people and we have tried to do that in our church here and we've tried to do it personally. The, the question we have to ask is, do we have compassion toward physical misery? Secondly, we need to have compassion toward spiritual misery. This, this was a challenge to me this week as I studied it, um, to, realize, to realize that part of the motivation for ministry has to be mercy. We see people in their misery and we say, God help me to help them. And I would just divide this into three areas, sharing the gospel. I, I had to put these alliterated words here because it was so beautiful, but I, I thought I would put the plain phrases also. Prayer and correcting wrong belief. Um, these, these, these are just three broad areas that we ought to be merciful toward people. Sharing the gospel is an act of mercy. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. But if somebody is in the misery of being an unbeliever, it is merciful to share the gospel with them. Now, they may not want to hear it. But it is still merciful to share it with them. And I'm not, I'm not trying to create a bunch of commando Christians that beat people over the head. More so just to say, you know what, the, the greatest act of mercy you could do is to help somebody come to know the Lord. What a great thing. To pray for people is, is a, an act of mercy. To correct people is an act of mercy. Listen to this from Jude. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and on some have compassion, that's our word mercy, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. One of the challenges for us as we grow in the Lord is that we, we, we do want to stay separate from sin. And it's not too hard to slip over into an attitude of, of, of looking at people in the world and hating the garment defiled by the flesh. We think, oh, look at those sinners, what they're doing. Stupid sinners. And, and, and we slip over into this holier-than-thou attitude, I think it happens by accident sometime. The garment defiled by the flesh, I think you could just define that as the lifestyle of an unbeliever. We face this challenge in, in deciding whether or not we'll have an event on October 31st. We don't want to have anything to do with Halloween. We, we don't, that is the garment defiled by the flesh. And yet we have to look past that and say, God, help us to love those people who need you. 
There may be times when, when there are people around who, who have sinful habits that we have escaped and, and, and it was hard work and the Lord delivered us from those things and we think, boy, I don't want to be around that. And, and, and sometimes we even get to thinking, well, I got out, why can't you get out? We may be repulsed by some sins because we've never been tempted in that way. But I guarantee you, when those attitudes start to creep up, then we've forgotten this little principle from Scripture. What makes you different from someone else? And what do you have that you did not receive or was not given to you? Now, if you did receive it as a gift, why do you boast as though you did not receive it as a gift? In other words, everything in our spiritual life is a gift from God. And when we start to to slip into an attitude of thinking we have become something or know something and forget that all that stuff, spiritual stuff, was given to us by God, we slip out of mercy and into condemnation. We have to be moved with compassion to act in mercy toward those who do not know the Lord yet. One of the authors that I read this week said this, As tragic as it is to show no mercy toward those in physical distress, how much more terrible is it to have the riches of the kingdom and not to share it with others who are less fortunate? It is cold cruelty of the worst sort. It would be better to pass by a suffocating man with a tank of oxygen than to pass by a lost person with the keys to the kingdom. Wow. We need to be merciful toward those in spiritual misery. Number three, we need to be compassionate or merciful toward relational misery. Relational misery. Do you remember this verse? Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. I bet Peter thought he was really puffing it up. Seven times, Lord. In, in his day, that would have been really something. Now, the, the par- I've, I've read this in particular because the parable that comes after it, we don't often connect to forgiveness. Then Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven, therefore. So this parable, this illustration that's coming is going to teach us about forgiveness, about being merciful in relationships. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants, And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. One author that I read said this would equal $20 million in today's money. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he should be sold and his wife and children be sold and all that he had so that payment will be made. Probably not going to equal up to 20 million bucks, but it sure will make you feel good. The servant, therefore, fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. Maybe he remembered his own poor days. Maybe he remembered his own mistakes. He was moved with compassion, and he released him, and he forgave the whole debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That would be a hundred days' wages. 
And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe me! So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Sound familiar? And he would not, but he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved. And they came and told their master all that had been done. Then, the master said, then, then his master, after he called him, said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? The basis of our mercy toward others is God's mercy toward us. How many times shall we forgive? Seventy times seven, Jesus said. Mercy should be characterized by charity, by evangelism, by forgiveness. What does mercy say about us? What is the testimony of mercy? From 1 John 3, we see this. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. We know that our life has changed from being an unbeliever to being a believer because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? The testimony of mercy is this. The mercy is an expression of genuine transformation. If you don't possess it, you are not a child of God. Now that's a pretty bold statement for me to make. And I realize I can't judge your heart. One of the authors that I read made a great distinction, and I would certainly make this distinction too. There's a difference between working at mercy and struggling with it and having no heart for it whatsoever. If you have no heart for it whatsoever, then something hasn't changed in your heart, and you well may not be a child of God. One author put it this way, if we refuse to be merciful, there's only one reason. We have never understood the mercy of God. The familiar passage from James adds to it like this. If a brother or sister is naked or destitute of daily food, and one of you says, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now God is not teaching us that we're going to earn our salvation, but he's saying if you have real faith, it really changes your life, and there will be an observable impact in the way you act toward other people. Now, as we come back to to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at the second half of this phrase in our last point here today to realize there is a great blessing attached to mercy, a great blessing. He said, blessed or happy are those, happy are the merciful for, here's the blessing, they shall obtain mercy. Now, this is not a promise of mercy from our fellow man. I can guarantee you, if you act merciful in a godly way, that that will not mean that every person in your life will treat you that way. That is not what God is promising. Um, There are many folks in the world who will not uh, respond to your mercy with mercy. 
But this is a declaration by God about how he treats people. And it brings us back to that scripture we just read about the the unjust servant. His master, after he called him back, you wicked servant, I forgave you. You should have had compassion on your fellow servant. And his master was angry, delivered him to the torturers. So my heavenly father will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. Now that's a pretty harsh statement, isn't it? God is likening the way he will treat you to the way that man treated his servant by throwing him into prison. Now that doesn't mean that God is literally going to throw you into prison, but there is a there is a, an ultimate sense of this and then there is a, a current sense. The ultimate experience of this has to do with salvation. If you do not believe in Christ, you will not be saved. If you do believe in Christ, your life will be changed. You will receive mercy. You will know how to give mercy. But if you fail to believe in Christ and become merciful, God is going to hold you to account for that someday, and there will be eternal punishment. If you believe in Christ, then you come under the current experience of this principle of receiving mercy, and and you understand that acting like Christ will cause you to reap the blessing of God. Acting like Christ will cause you to reap the blessing of God. A couple of verses state the principle. Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you refuse to be merciful in a Christ-like way, you put yourself at odds with God. When I learned how this word resist was used, the picture has always stuck with me. One of the ways it was used in secular Greek means to go to war with. Do you want to go to war with God? More, More significantly, do you want God to go to war with you? Pride is the particular issue here, but pride also wells up to any act of disobedience. And if you say, I am not going to be merciful, then you are putting yourself in a position where God says, let's see. Because God wants you to be merciful, and so he's going to work toward you becoming merciful. I think the principle in Matthew 5 is similar to this principle. Given it will be given. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, be put into your bosom for what the same measure you use, it will be measured back. And this is talking about God. God says, if you will honor me with the stuff of your life, I will take care of you. And the same is true of mercy. If you will be merciful to others as a believer in Christ, God says, I am going to take care of you. I am going to cause you to know mercy, to be to experience mercy. I heard the greatest story on the radio this week. A guy named John Curley. Have any of you listened to Cairo? He used to be on the TV, now he's on the radio. He said when he lived in Washington, D.C. years ago, he had a friend who used to collect up food. It was this friend, it was his own business, his own ministry, whatever. He didn't use the word ministry, his own charity. 
And he would go to a high-rise building that had 10 apartments on a floor, and I don't know how many floors, and he would give a Thanksgiving dinner to everybody in that building. And he would package it up in a, uh, in a grocery bag and take a, uh, a wagon and put 10 of them in there because there are 10 apartments on a floor. And he would go to the first door and knock on it and give them a meal and right on down the road. Then he'd go back and get 10 more and do that for the whole building. And so one year he says, John, come with me and do this. And as John told the story, uh, this man was black, John was white. The black man said, these, these people probably have, you'll be the first white people these folks have ever talked to, white person that they've ever talked to. And uh, so here's, you know, Curly's going along with him and they go to the first door and they knock on the door. This woman comes to the door and they say, here's Thanksgiving dinner for you. And she looks at it and she curses and she says, do I have to cook this? And so she takes it and curses some more, curse, curse, and shuts the door. And John Curley says to his friend, I'm out. She didn't deserve that. I'm not doing any more of this. And he says, <laughs> and Curley didn't describe him as a Christian, but he had to be, because he says, come on, John. Jesus is going to be behind that next door. Come on, John. And he, and he, and he calls him enough, so John says, okay. So they go to the next door, knock it up, hold this bag up, and this woman comes with six kids, and she says, oh, thank you, thank you, you've made my Thanksgiving, you've got to come back and have dinner with me. She's so effusive in her praise. And uh, John Curley learned a lesson from that, is, and that is you've got to give, whether people give back or not, especially Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Christ. There's got to be mercy that comes from us. Some people are not going to respond in the right way, but it's our job to be merciful because God has been merciful to us. And whether or not they respond well to us, God will, and God will take care of us. May God help us extend his mercy to other people. Heavenly Father, oh, it's so easy for us to slip into some wrong attitudes about who we are and who other people are. Help us to be merciful with physical needs, with spiritual needs, with relationship needs. Help us to trust you. Help us to act in mercy, trusting you for the results. And as we do, Father, make yourself known, make yourself true, show yourself true. Let us, let us receive your mercy and see it and feel it and increase all the more in the mercy we give others. I pray in Christ's name, amen.